All right. Uh, if you were here last Sunday, we uh, kind of covered the really grand climax and finale of the book of John. Not the ending, but certainly the grand finish. Uh, and if you weren't here, let me just review a little bit because it's significant. Ju- uh, Thomas the skeptic uh, missed out on G- seeing Jesus. A um, week later, Jesus appears, and uh, Thomas, who was so skeptical and doubting and needed so desperately to be convinced, uh, met Christ, and, and Jesus overwhelmingly convinces him not only that he had rose from the dead, was living, but in fact, Thomas comes out with this amazing declaration that is the grand punchline of the book. And Thomas says, you are my Lord and my God. And with dramatic power, uh, John puts really the punchline of the book that that's what it's all about. Up to this point, it's been alluded and implied, and finally they get it. Oh, Jesus isn't just a king. He's not just the Moses, David, slash Elijah guy that's going to like rock the world. It's God. Come to the earth. And that's uh, where John really uh, concludes his whole argument of the book. Um, and up to this point, the whole book is focused on, here's this person, this man, who John's been trying to, con- and Jesus and the Holy Spirit have been trying to convince everybody, isn't just a man, but it's actually God incarnate, the incarnate living word. Well, now that that truth is out, it raises some other interesting questions for the disciples. And I really believe that John uh, gives this last story to balance out the equation a bit. Um, you know, here's the deal. If, and just imagine the disciples, what this, what, what this did to their brains, okay? All this time, you know, you've got this guy that you admire a lot, you think a lot of, he's a cool guy, He's obviously very gifted and talented, obviously very empowered by God. But all of a sudden, it dawns on you, he's just not empowered by God. He is God. Okay, now this just gets really awkward, you know? Like, how do you talk to this guy now? Uh, is, it, is it the same? And not only is he God, but he's resurrected. He's walking around, walking through walls. He appears, disappears. You know, he's like, poof, he's there, he's gone. Well, you know, what is their relationship going to be like with this guy now? All of a sudden, when you, when you cast it in that new light, if it was me, it would, it would launch Jesus to a, a place far remote from where I live. Okay? Before, he hung out with them, he ate with them, you know, they joked, they walked down the road together. You know, I can just imagine them, you know, Jesus punching them in the arm, saying, all right, guys, whatever. Well, now it's God. Like, can you touch him? Do you... Can you talk to him, right? What do you do with this new Jesus, right? Um, and I think there is a great temptation, and I, I, in fact I know there's a great temptation because we do this very thing, of creating this great dichotomy in our life, of kind of like the everyday normal kind of life that we don't bother God with, and like the spiritual holy side of life, right? And we can meet God in the holy side of life. Come to church and worship, but you know, like afterwards we go eat lunch at, you know, Miguel's and we have burritos and, you know, there's some there's some separation in all that. It's not all one thing anymore, and I think the disciples were kind of caught in this tension of, we got to be really when you see Jesus, we got to be really careful. I can't curse anymore. I can't, you know, I can't drink beer anymore. 
I don't know. You know, they, I mean, all of a sudden, life gets really weird for these guys, right? Not that it's weird for us, right? What do we do with this Jesus who's God, right? Is he this distant, remote, detached being who, you know, doesn't relate to anything in our world and our life anymore? Who is he? Well, just to, just to, if, you, if you don't really think there's a dichotomy, uh, l- let me illustrate it this way. As I read through the commentaries on this, and there's a lot of crazy stuff about this story, John chapter 21, crazy stuff. And uh, I know this dichotomy exists because so many commentators get caught in this trap, in John chapter 21. And here's how it works. Up to John chapter 20, everything Jesus did is loaded with great spiritual meaning and significance. Because again, Jesus is the man and they're trying to show that he's God, right? So every story, every act, every miracle is a sign. And Jesus makes it very clear. They're signs. They're not just taken at face value. They have deep theological meaning. And we've tried to unpack some of that as we've gone through the book and hopefully you've seen that. Um, Well, theologians, scholars, all these people kind of keep marching on with that same bent as they hit John John chapter 21. And they want to turn everything into something deeply spiritual and significant. Every turn of word, every little symbol has to take on great impact and meaning. Now to illustrate this, because it can't just be normal life. Okay, It can't just be that they were fishing. Okay, It's got to be evangelizing the souls of the world. right? They can't just be out because they're hungry. can't have that. To illustrate it, how many fish did they catch? Anybody know offhand? You could look in your book. 153 fish, right? For 1,500 years, scholars have been trying to unlock the mystery of the number 153. It can't just mean that they caught 153 fish. That's not good enough. It has to mean something. Uh, I can't even remember all these numbers, so I've got to read this because it's just too crazy. Jerome in the early church decided that this tied to Ezekiel chapter 47, I'll let you look it up, and that the 153 represents what at that time they thought were all the species of fish in the world. And some guys supposedly cataloged all the fish and came up with 153 species of fish. And so Jerome concluded that it meant all the, all the species, all the tongues and tribes of people all over the world that, who had come to Christ. And that it was symbolic of that. The problem with that argument is that the guy's list actually had 157 species, so he's off by four. So I'm not sure which four people groups got left out there. but um, Okay, that had flaws. So then they came up with another theory, and they triangulated the number. And I don't know what this means. Does any math teachers know what it means to triangulate a number? It apparently means you, you go like 1 plus 2 uh, plus 3 plus 4 plus 5 up to 17 equals 153. So the triangulated number of 153 is 17. You got that? So 17 being a significant number. Um, so 153 equals uh, 17, which, each, which equals 10 plus 7, which, equals, which represents the Ten Commandments and the Sevenfold Spirit of God. There you go. Now you know what the number 153 means. Or if that wasn't good enough, 153 equals 17, which equals 10 plus 3 plus 4 which would be the Ten Commandments, the Trinity, and apparently the number for Jerusalem is four. Okay, it gets kind of dizzying and mind-boggling, right? Or, if that system doesn't work, try this one. Okay, you guys know what gematria is? 
It's, uh, it's in Revelation when you have the, the number equals 666. That's a thing in, in Hebrew thinking called gematria, where you assign a number value to a letter. Well, if you do that, the number numerical value of all this, of 17, of course, not 153. It always comes back to 17, because 153 is too big. Um, actually, you take 153 and 17, and it comes up with two words, engedi and eglium, which comes also from Ezekiel 47, and has something to do with, I don't know what. Okay? Or it was just 153 fish. <laughs> um, it's interesting how we do this, you know. And I really believe, and, and uh, as we look at the story this morning, I want to boil it down to just a simple story. And I really believe that there's great danger in over, in this case, of over-spiritualizing and giving too much meaning. Uh, and as we look at the story... I really believe what Jesus is trying to say to us, what John's trying to say, is yes, he is God. Absolutely. I've spent 20 chapters, John says, trying to demonstrate that. But he is the God-man. He is the God who did come to this earth and took on human flesh and became one of us. All right. And so I'm just going to go through and, and basically tell the story this morning. Uh, I may embellish it a bit. Please forgive me. Uh, but I'll try not to over-spiritualize it in my embellishing. And I really want you to try to get that background or perspective of Jesus, the God-man raised from the dead, reigning in heaven. But he wants to make sure he keeps in balance and in check who he is as he ministers to the disciples, as they continue in their relationship with him. So let's look at the story. And... Uh, I will let you just follow along in Scripture, but I, I would like to just tell it, and I don't have a lot of uh, notes this morning. I have some kind of main points and pictures. And mo all these pictures actually come from uh, the Sea of Galilee, uh, probably from the area near where this, this event unfolded. And it says, it tells us that, that Jesus appeared to them and that it, the setting for this appearance is in Galilee. Now, of course, chapter 21, they're in Jerusalem. And so the disciples have, have traveled back. The festival's over. Uh, it's between, this is the period between Easter and Pentecost. Interestingly, right now, today, we sit right in between Easter and Pentecost. Easter was made tw April 12th. Pentecost will be May 31st. It's in this in-between season. Uh, they had traveled back to Galilee. Um, if we use our imagination some, I don't know how they took that route. Did they take the normal Jewish route that skirted around Samaria? Or did they say, well, you know, Jesus didn't do that. We're just going to go through Samaria like Jesus did. And as they traveled through, did they, did they go near the village of Samaria? Did they stop at the well where Jesus had talked with the woman at the well? I'm sure for the disciples, this was a time of just incredible memories. Jesus is gone, and they make this journey back to Galilee for the first time without him. Uh, I am sure it was a season of many, many memories. And I'm sure that it struck them as they remembered things, as they passed by that well. Jesus saying to the woman, I am the living water. Anyone who drinks from me will never thirst again. And the meaning of those words begin to simmer in their minds. They get to Galilee. 
Talk about memories. Uh, Capernaum, Galilee, the place where they probably were, was the home of Peter, uh, Andrew, James, and John, all fishermen. They probably went home there beside the Sea of Galilee. I am sure that thoughts about the day they met Jesus came rushing back to them. As Peter and James and John and Andrew remember John the Baptist declaring, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Wow, what meaning that would have for those guys. Now, on the other side of the cross. And I'm sure they thought, you know, as they walked along the sea, they saw their old fishing boats, their old fishing buddies, remembering the day Jesus came and they were in their boat fishing. And Jesus called them and says, Come, put down your nets and come and follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Uh, the thoughts and memories that must have gone through their mind as they remembered spending a lot of months, a lot of time in that region uh, where it began. It says there were seven of them there. I don't know what happened to the other four. It doesn't say. Seven of the guys, and it named some of them. Thomas, uh, the hero... In my, in my book, the hero of chapter 20, uh, who's just made this amazing declaration. He is there. Uh, Andrew, Peter, James, and John. Nathaniel. Remember, Nathaniel was from Cana, uh, the place where Jesus turned the water into wine. They showed up at this wedding. Wine runs out. Not a problem. Jesus fixes it. And there is just enough wine, a lot of wine, Jugs full of wine, vats full of wine, abundant provision as God took care of that problem at the wedding. Uh, it's significant that they were together. Uh, they still were held together by, by Christ. They had not given up. They were not disbanding. Uh, you know, the four guys, we don't know where they were. Maybe they had errands. They're still together. They're still following Christ. And in that setting, they're hanging out. They're, they're doing what Jesus called them to. He said, go to Galilee and wait for me. And I'm going to be sending the Holy Spirit. And they're in this season of waiting. And Peter says one day, one afternoon, maybe early evening, I'm going fishing. I'm going fishing. And I, I can just see these guys walking up and down the, the lake, and they see the boats out there. And I mean, these guys are fishermen. It just stirs something in their in their heart. They're going, oh, they just get these itchy fingers, man. They just want to get out on the water. They want to feel those nets. Peter's going, I have a net. I'm going fishing. Now, a lot of a lot of scholars, theologians, people who write books about this stuff, have really done some weird things with these poor disciples. And there's all kinds of theories about how they were running away. They were giving up on Jesus. They were going back to their their former jobs. They had lost sight of everything. Well, you've got to understand something. The guys who write these commentaries, I know some of them. And one of my dear friends and professors at seminary was Bruce Demarest. Uh, the guy, every day in class, would, would harass us and would, and would mock all of us for watching football. So I'm getting even with him now, okay? Uh, would mock us for watching football for, like, having, you know, guy activities. And on every Friday... Uh, you see Dr. Demarest going from the library to his car with a couple books, like a stack this tall. He would be like loaded down like this. He couldn't even see. He had so many books. And the guy literally would spend his whole weekend reading books. And I'm not talking like fun, happy books. I'm talking about like dusty old books. 
It's like the guy had no life, right? And, you know, these are the guys who write these commentaries. They don't know that fishing is fun. <laughs> right? They, th- they actually believe that reading books is like fun. Like reading Greek is like the dream of their life, right? So they're sure that if these guys went out fishing, there's something defective. Right? Like that's what he was with us. If we watched football, he was convinced we were defective. He would mock us all the time, tell us every week to con- uh, confess our sin, you know, because we weren't taking home stacks of theology books. Well, that's not real life. These guys were not scholars. These guys didn't go to the library and check out stacks full of books. These guys were fishermen. And when they're home and there's nothing to do and they're getting hungry and they're broke, what do you do? Well, you go fishing. You get out your boat, you get out your nets. And I'm sure it was fun for these guys. I can see them getting together, getting excited, dragging the boat out, getting their nets, you know, feeling the rock of the waves in the boat, the creak of the oars, the water lapping up against the side of the boat as they oar out, throw the nets, and just the thrill every time of casting that net. Is there any of you fishermen? You got any fishermen here? Fisher ladies, fisher people? Oh, man. You guys aren't all book people too, are you? Oh, my goodness. Okay, good. You know, there's the anticipation if you make that cast out, just sure you're going to get a fish, right? Every net. You know, they're casting out, anticipating catching fish, waiting for the tug on the net of the weight of those fish as they catch them. These guys are having fun. This is what they do. This is life. This is everyday normal life for them. Uh, I'm sure they're giving each other a hard time as the, as the hours tick on and they don't catch fish. I'm sure, you know, Thomas is going, see, I told you we weren't going to catch fish. You know, Thomas, probably, they probably all die. There's probably no fish in this lake. You know, Peter's saying, the only reason we're not catching fish, Thomas, is because you're in the boat. We're going to throw you overboard like Jonah. And then we'll catch fish. Right? I'm sure they're having fun. They're fellowshipping. They're remembering more. Maybe their conversation turned to uh, countless trips across the Sea of Galilee with Jesus. How many times they crisscrossed that lake, uh, mostly running away from crowds, right? They'd get in the boat, they'd paddle across to some other remote place trying to get away. Maybe they remember the time when they left the crowds and paddled to a remote place climbed upon a mountain to be alone so Jesus could just hang out with them and fellowship and commune. Just hang out, do life. And uh, the crowds found them, remember? 15,000 people show up and Jesus has compassion on the crowd. And he, he loves these people. And he sees their hunger for the word, hunger for truth, and he teaches them. And after you know, a long day and they're out there in the middle of nowhere, Jesus turns to Philip and he says, Philip, where can we buy food for these people? And, t- and Philip just passes out right there. You know, 15,000 people, like we're a long way from Walmart. They're out in the middle of nowhere. And they're going, we're, we got food for 15, are you serious, Jesus? 15,000 people? And you want to feed them? And, G- and Peter pipes up and says, you know, I've got it. We have five loaves of bread and two fish. And Jesus says, perfect. And what does he do? He feeds the crowd with nothing but a couple fish and a few loaves of bread, and he feeds them all. And I'm sure as the night goes on and no fish, they're thinking, man, Jesus just had a way of making big things happen. If Jesus were here, 
we would have fish. You know, he could take two fish and turn it into enough to feed 15,000. Man, if he were here, just imagine the boatload of fish we could haul in. And maybe they remembered the trip back across the Sea of Galilee that night, how they had sent the crowd away, and late at night, they, uh, Jesus had put them in a boat and sent them back across the Sea of Galilee uh, while he remained back to pray and to just seek the Father. And as they paddled their way, oared their way, whatever, back across the Sea of Galilee, a huge storm, a huge wind came up, and they found themselves all night long battling against this headwind, going nowhere. And then just before dawn, Jesus walks up to them on water. And uh, they're freaked out, they're scared to death, and this Jesus, this guy who is all making sense now, well, yeah, of course he could walk on water. He's God. I get it now. And he gets in the boat, and immediately, instantly, they're to the other shore, right? And all these pieces are coming together, all these memories, being in the boat with Jesus many hours, the things he taught, the things he talked about. Um, All these memories. Well, the night wears on, and they fish, and they fish. uh, And it becomes, in the end, a long night with no fish. I don't know if this bummed these guys out. I don't know. You know, if this was kind of a normal thing. Uh, it would seem a little odd, a lake this size, they can't catch one lousy sardine. Uh, I don't know. You know, maybe um, maybe it was a bit discouraging. I know for me, when I fish for a long time, I haven't caught anything. Eventually, I do one of two things. I throw the fishing pole in the water and get really ticked off. Or I start praying fervently. God, please... Just one fish. <laughs> Just one fish. Help me out here, right? I don't know if they did that. You know, I don't know if they decided they should start praying at some point. Uh, I don't know if it kicked into their memory. Jesus' words, uh, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Just ask. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you can ask for anything you want and I will give it to you. I don't know if those words went through their mind. I don't know if they tried it. Uh, as they thought about all that Jesus taught, I don't know that, uh, that they remembered Him talking about being the vine and the branches, the one who would always be with them. Certainly, in this season of grief and loss, I can't imagine that there were times when they did not miss Him desperately. And as the night wore on, I can't imagine that they didn't start thinking, oh, if Jesus were only here, Jesus would fix it. Jesus would give us success. Jesus would give us a boatload of fish. Wondering where he was. Jesus had promised them, I will go away, but I will come back to you, and you will see me again. I will not abandon you as orphans. I don't know if they were feeling abandoned. I don't know, but I can imagine they were thinking, where is Jesus? Where is Jesus? Is he, is, is he forgotten us? Has he left us? Where is he? Um, if they knew that without Jesus, they could do nothing. Jesus had told them, without me, apart from me, you can do nothing. Maybe they remembered those words and they began to think about this. Okay, before we could fish and make a living and catch fish, now... Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. We can't even go back to being fishermen. We're really up a creek without a paddle here, or up a sea of Galilee without a fish. Um, what are you going to do? We can't even fish anymore. 
You know, what are we going to do? Jesus isn't here. Well, eventually, uh, the night breaks into dawn. Uh, The early morning light breaks. The sun breaks over the the mountains in the Far East. That is, by the way, a a sunset on the Sea of Galilee. Um, It is a new day. And uh, the sea of darkness that they've been in, all of a sudden, uh, everything around them becomes alive and clear and they see things come into perspective the shore they're about a hundred yards off and they notice there on the shore a lone figure standing there who has been watching them There's no idea how long I mean as as the darkness turns to light they're not sure how long he's been standing there has this guy been watching them all night has he been standing there this whole time but now at the break of, of light they see him and uh, he's watching them. He's interested in what they're doing. And in fact, he calls out to them. <clears throat> hey, hey, kids, have you caught anything to eat yet? Well, you know, if you're a fisherman, you hate this question. <laughs> you know, some smart aleck on the shore. Of course we haven't caught anything. You know, he probably sees our empty boat. Uh, rubbing it in, you know. Just giving us a hard time. Anything to eat. No, we're starving out here. Um, we're hungry. We've gone all night. No fish. Nothing. To, no catch. Who is this guy? And then to make matters worse, like all you know, observers, armchair fishermen, he has the nerve and audacity to give us advice. You know, you need to throw the net on the right side of the boat. Very clear. He doesn't just say try again. Very clear, specific instructions. You need to cast your net on the right side of the boat. Okay, so now this guy who's standing there doesn't even have a boat is going to tell us how to fish, right? He's all of a sudden now an expert. That's how it is, you know. The guy watching is always the expert. And I don't know what these guys were thinking about this guy on the shore. Maybe they had heard this often. You know, helpful strangers on the shore are going to tell us how to do our job. Uh, And we don't know if they do this to to humor this guy, just to be polite. Maybe they're trying to show him, okay, we'll show you, Mr. Smarty. You know, we'll, we'll do just what you said. And it'll just as empty as before. We don't know. It's clear they didn't understand it was Jesus. Okay, they, didn't, they didn't follow these directions or instructions because they had some sense or idea that this was Jesus instructing them. As far as they know and understand, it's just some wise guy on the shore giving advice. But for whatever reason, they... They do what he says. We don't know who was throwing the net, but they would throw this net out, this large net, and it would, would be weighted, it would begin to sink, and then they would slowly begin gathering the, the, the sides of the net back in so that it would make a, a bag, in essence. And we don't know which ones were pulling the net back, but as they began to pull, instantly they knew things were different. Uh, and I can picture Nathaniel out there pulling. All of a sudden, the net's just ripped out of his hand. It is so heavy, he can't even, he can't even hold on to it anymore. And he calls for people to help, and Peter comes, and, and John comes. They began pulling. And three of them, it's not enough. And they call for more, and then more, until all seven are leaning over the side of this boat till the boat's about to capsize, straining with all of their might to drag in this net that is chocked full of fish. 
The weight of it's so great, they can't even get it in the boat. They're struggling just to get it to the boat. A huge catch of fish. 153, right? Uh, there's actually a fish now in the, uh, that's named in the Sea of Galilee called St. Peter's Fish. Uh, it's a fish a lot like Top Team. It's about, weighs from anywhere one to two kilos. Good-sized fish. 153 of those would weigh, you know, three, 400 pounds. They are straining all their might. And all of a sudden, John, who always throughout the gospel sees things first, and maybe one reason he doesn't name himself, <laughs> always the guy that figures it out first says, it's the Lord. It's the Lord. John knows this is not just some guy on the beach. There's only one person that can make this happen. It's Jesus. And Peter, who always acts first, before he thinks, grabs his coat, puts it on, and jumps in the water. Okay? It helps to think first. <laughs> right? And he starts swimming back to the shore with his coat on. Theologians have had all kinds of fun, uh, interesting, with, playing with this. Why, why did he do that? Well, in, in that culture, it was very rude to show up uh, to your teacher, you know, not dressed all the way. Uh, so he wants, to, he wants to appear before Jesus appropriate. He starts swimming back. And immediately the disciples start rowing the boat back, dragging this huge haul of fish. Uh, it's, it's kind of a toss-up which got there first. Peter swimming with his coat on. Uh, are those guys dragging the fish? We don't know. Probably they got there about the same time. Um, and they, they hit the beach. And the, Peter drags himself up out of the water, dripping wet. The guys get there shortly after, start piling off the boat. And here on the beach is this charcoal fire. Uh, and on the charcoal, on the coals, are roasting some fish, a fish, and some bread. And just what an amazing picture. You can just picture this in your mind. Uh, these guys come up, but charcoal fire was not something that, of course, we don't know how long Jesus has been, had been there. We don't know how he built the fire. He was God. He created the world. He spoke it into existence. I, he could have just said, let there be fire. There's a charcoal fire. The thing about a charcoal fire, fire though, is it's not a fire that that is a, is a new fire. To get coals going well, it takes a while, right? You've got to have that fire going for a while. Uh, the fish are apparently cooked. The bread's ready. Um, and they stumble up to this scene, and here's Jesus poking the fire, you know, messing with the fish. Um, breakfast. <laughs> There's breakfast. And all of a sudden, all of them, they smell the smoke, they smell the scent of this cooking fish. Uh, instantly, man, their, their mouths start to water. They're, they, they realize, man, we're hungry. And here's breakfast. And here is Jesus cooking breakfast over this charcoal fire. And uh, Jesus says to them, hey, bring some of those fish. Weird way to start the conversation. Uh, certainly not very holy. You know, there's no, oh, hallowed be thy... Thou gracious, O beloved saints. You know? He says, hey, bring some fish. Where's the fish? You just caught 153 fish. Let's have some. You guys can't eat one fish here. Come on, guys. And they're just stunned. And these guys don't know what to do. 
And you can just imagine this in, in, in the setting of the seniors, this great uncertainty. And here's God cooking breakfast. What do you do with that? How do you respond to that? And it's cool. He wants their fish. You know, he's, uh, he's God. I don't know where he got the one fish, but he could have spoke. He could have got a thousand fish. He wants their fish. Nothing like fresh caught fish, you know? Mine's old. <laughs> I want your fish. Your fish is fresh, man. It's still kicking. You have fresh fish, right? So it says Peter, I love this. It says Peter runs, climbs up on the boat, single handedly drags this net of fish up onto the beach. Whatever you say about Peter, he must have been one tough guy. Very strong, uh, very determined. <laughs> drags this net of fish up. And the disciples run back and they start sorting these fish out, lining them out on the beach. Uh, this is this is not only breakfast, but this is like this is income. And they start sorting them out and laying them out on the beach in, in rows. A few minutes, they figure out they've got 153 fish. And not only that, but the net didn't tear in one single spot. Their net is perfect. And they bring some fish up, and and they're all just kind of standing at a safe distance from the fire, staring at Jesus. And they just don't know what to do. They're standing there with you know these squirming fish in their hands. And it's like, well, what do we do now? And Jesus says to them, literally, King James translation version, come and dine. The Greek word that's used there, if you translate it straight across, literally would be just that, come and dine. Uh, in the more common modern vernacular, come on, let's eat breakfast. Let's eat. And uh, they eat together. They have fellowship together. They break bread together. It's interesting. It says Jesus takes the bread and the fish and he actually serves them. Uh, very similar language to other scenes in other settings. When Jesus fed the 5,000 where he broke the bread and served them. Uh, at, certainly at the Lord's table, when Last Supper, when Jesus broke the bread and gave it to them. Uh, it's very reminiscent of when Jesus at the Last Supper took, put off his garments and put on the robes and clothes of a slave and washed their feet. He serves them. He serves them the bread and the fish. Interestingly, though, one thing that's missing from all those other accounts is he doesn't bless the food, he forgets to pray. Jesus doesn't pray. What is with that? He just gives them the food. Wow. God doesn't pray for breakfast. <laughs> what do you do with that? Huh? And I can just see as he takes it and one by one meets them and gives them some fish and some bread and he looks them eye to eye and I can just picture his face bright and alive as he looks into their eyes filled with joy and life. And this person that says, I'm the same Jesus. I'm the same Jesus you knew. I haven't changed a bit. I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. The Jesus you knew that walked with you for all those last three years, I'm the same guy. Don't get weird on me. Okay? Don't get weird. I'm the same guy. Let's eat breakfast. Just like we always did. Every morning, what did we do? Well, we ate breakfast. That's what people do. Let's eat breakfast. And he served them. And he was the God who was the man, who was one of them, 
who met them, who served them, who loved them, who was their friend and companion. And as they put this all together in their mind, whether then or later, you know, they start thinking, how long was he standing there? Uh, It becomes clear and obvious that he's the one that brought the fish. Had he been there all night watching them? Well, he had promised, I will never leave you. I will be with you always. I will be abiding with you. Whether you see me or not, I am there. Let me just close with three thoughts about this story. And again, I don't want to, I want to be very careful not to over-spiritualize it. Because I really do think it's just a good story about how Jesus is today and now. Uh, we ought to hold Him as God. We ought to worship Him as Creator of the universe. We've got to be careful that we keep a balance. That we don't make Him so much God and so transcendent and so distant that He's no longer Jesus the man. John had to write this to, to keep it all in balance. Yeah, He is divine. He is God. But don't forget, long before the disciples knew Him that way, He was just a guy. An extraordinary guy, but a man. He's still that man. So three observations I have. The first one is that Jesus really does meet us in everyday life. Um, we, you know, we say this and we know this, uh, but life is not a, a dichotomy, a separation, a split between the spiritual and the unspiritual. For those of us in Christ, Christ makes everything sacred. Everything in our life becomes holy, set apart for God when Jesus fills it. Was fishing a sacred or a secular activity? It was a holy activity when when Jesus filled it. Okay, Jesus meets us in everyday life. Now, you know, and, and throughout John we've talked a lot about the importance and the need of spending time with God, drawing apart, being in His Word, meditating upon His Word, praying, fellowshipping. And I really believe that that is important. But that is not to say that Jesus can't meet you anytime, anywhere. Okay, You could actually be fishing. You could be playing golf. This is Rick's, this is Rick's great hope. You can be playing golf and meet God. Uh, some of you that were at the, uh, the Grace Banquet the other night, um, um, Don Williams did a great job talking about how he meets, meets God and, met, and God's really spoke to him through exercising, through lifting weights and the agony of that. Great testimony of meeting God in the workout room. Can you meet God in the gym? That's the point of the story. God meets us and follows us in every part of everyday life. All right? So we have to be very careful that we don't get this idea that, well, on Sunday morning we have this great worship time, we're going to meet God there, but then afterward at lunch... We leave God behind at church and we just hang out with our friends and Jesus isn't there anymore. The whole point of the story is that Jesus is always there. In all the accounts uh, from, through chapter 20, uh, Mary uh, at the tomb, long before she saw Jesus, he had been standing there looking over her shoulder. With Thomas, uh, he didn't see Jesus, but Jesus clearly was there all along and heard everything he said. It is implied throughout this gospel that Jesus is always there in every part of life, in our doubts, in our fears, in our struggles, in our everyday life. He meets us there. Second thing, 
uh, it really is Jesus who brings success. Uh, Jesus is the one who makes all of our hard work pay off. Uh, they had worked really hard all night. Uh, they had put a lot of labor. But it wasn't until Jesus instructed and guided them that they had fruit. Now some people would say, well, what if they had caught fish in the middle of the night before Jesus showed up? Would it have really changed anything? Would the fish have been any less from Jesus if they'd caught them four hours earlier? Right? Who supplies everything for us? Whether we're aware of it or not, who is the source of everything in our life? Who is the great vine who sustains and supplies everything in our life? All right? And it's great, really easy to spiritualize this, you know, and you know, turn the fish into souls of men and all that. And it's true that God, that Jesus wants to bring success and fruitfulness to everything we set our hand to for Him. In ministry, but in all things. Uh, it's okay that God just gave them a lot of food. It's okay. It doesn't have to be anymore. The point is that when we set our hand to labor for something, and we work, and hard work is always from God, our efforts and labor is always something that God upholds and values. Uh, and if we ever meet with success, it is at the hand of God. Always. And that's true not only for believers, but that's true for every Thai person out planting rice. If they plant rice and it grows and they get a harvest, who gave them the harvest? Jesus did. Sadly, they don't know it. But Jesus is the source of everything. And so everything that you set your hand to can be successful. And the cool thing in this story is uh, he, he guided them to success. They labored and labored and labored. But when he said, oh, by the way, try the other side of the boat, it was successful. He wants you and I to be successful. And as we let him guide and lead us, he will lead us to the place of success to our labor. Finally, last thing. This will make more sense to people who are from America, but uh, Jesus is like IHOP. Okay? IHOP stands for International House of Pancakes. Uh, and it's a restaurant in America that sells breakfast. And the great thing about IHOP that I love, I love IHOP. The great thing about IHOP is it's a restaurant that actually sells pancakes and eggs and bacon and stuff 24 hours around the clock. So I love breakfast. And you can go there like at 10 o'clock at night and you can get pancakes. It's just awesome. Okay? Man, I would love if they had an IHOP in Thailand, right? Where you could just go get breakfast at like 7 o'clock at night. Uh, Jesus is like that. Breakfast is served anytime. Um, in this story, you know, the, the light of a new day dawns, and Jesus is waiting there for them to meet them and to feed them, to sustain and nourish them. Uh, daily, Jesus longs to give you breakfast. He longs to feed and nurture you in His Word and His truth. Uh, he wants to sustain you physically, but Absolutely as much or more so. He wants to sustain you spiritually. He wants to meet you and feed your soul with His Word. Now the reality is, uh, you're not going to go you know, to some lake shore, and you're, in this day and age, sadly, you're never going to find Jesus cooking you breakfast on the shore. One of the things, when I get to heaven, I really hope I get to experience this. You know, I'm going to say, God, Jesus, we're going to have a date one day, we're going to go out on the lake, I'm going to go fish for all night. And I'm going to come in, because and, and, I love this story so much. 
And I'm going to come in and I'm going to be surprised that you're there fixing me breakfast, okay? That's what I'm going to do when I get to heaven. It's not going to happen for us on earth in that sense. But it can happen for us every day as we take and set aside time to just draw into his presence. He longs to meet with us, uh, to connect with our world. He longs for us to bring some of the work of our labor, the catch of our day, and share it together with him. The things going on in our life, the struggles, the failures, the disappointments, to bringing that fish to the fire, to chew over it together. You know, he wants and longs to meet with us. Uh, just what a great picture of this Jesus who's always there. Uh, in the dark of the night, we may not know it. But when the light shines, we see him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this is just such a wonderful story of grace and just such a real story about, um, about you. Lord, we praise you that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. The same Jesus who could hang out on the beach with his friends, who just soaked up real life, who loved it when they were fishing, who meets us in the midst of everything. Lord, you haven't changed and you are no different with us. Every day you're there. Whatever we're doing, wherever we're at, you're always there watching, guiding us. Lord, help us to remember to pray, to seek you. Uh, When we're working hard and, and nothing's happening, to claim that promise that if we abide in you and your word abides in us, that whatever we ask in your name, you will do it. It's your desire to bring abundance, fullness, uh, fruit to our life. Lord, we just praise you. We just worship you. We, we just long to be with you and to know this amazing Jesus. Lord, help us to know you more, we pray in your name. Amen.